Today, we have a very serious topic to talk about, a real public safety announcement. I want to focus on the most fearsome weapon humans possess. This dangerous device is probably in your own home, and your children are already using it. The cause of skin knees and bumped heads everywhere, I'm obviously talking about bikes. Not like motorbikes, like the lame ones you have to put cards in the spokes in order for it to make any cool sounds. We don't usually think of the bicycle as a weapon of war. Somehow, the image of noble knights riding horses seems far more impressive than a bunch of guys furiously pedaling while ringing a little bell so people move out of the way. But I'm here today to change your understanding of the humble bicycle, because used correctly, they are powerful. Bikes are easy to transport, easy to repair, don't require fuel other than food for the rider, and are faster than walking, quieter than a vehicle, and capable of crossing rough terrain. The question today is, what use is a bike to the military? Before the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, there was growing support for dedicated bicyclist units in the British military. Generally, militaries spend the interwar period preparing to fight a war that is the same as the previous one, and the last war between Germany and France had been the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. That war had been highly mobile, with encounter battles between the French and proto-German armies across France. With that example to look back on, bicycles seemed like they would be handy-dandy. The British had used bicycle-mounted troops in their campaigns during the Boer Wars in South Africa, and were interested in their use in a European war, where there would be good roads crisscrossing the land for bikes to utilize. In 1914, the first German troops to invade Belgium were on bicycles, and they delivered messages requesting the Belgian army stand down and not destroy any bridges or tunnels so that the Germans could pass through on their way to France. The Germans underestimated the Waffle Boys, though, who promptly blew up half the bridges and tunnels in the country while putting on sunglasses and flipping the Germans the bird. Unfortunately, the destructive power of modern weaponry forced any soldier who liked the unperforated state of their skin to tunnel into the ground like a corgi on the hunt, and bikes are pretty much worthless against trenches. But, bikes were extensively used to transport messages and maintain communications between troops, and for an example of this, you can watch the show on Netflix, Our World War, which shows the use of bikes during the Battle of Mons before the trenches became a thing on the Western Front. More interesting during the First World War is the use of bicycles in the war in East Africa. The First World War was an imperial war, and these conflicts between the foreign territories of the great powers is what changed the conflict into a true world war. And you thought all you were going to hear about was bikes? Nah, son, this is scattered history lesson with a sprinkling of bikes. In East Africa, Germany had a a little colony that was surrounded on all sides by the British and their allies, putting them in pretty much the same shitty situation Germany was in Europe, of being right in the middle of everything. Elspeth Huxley was a settler in British East Africa in 1913, and her experiences there can tell us a little bit about what it was like back then for a European colonizer family. See, her dad was one of those guys that was born into some money, but was always losing money and failed get-rich-quick schemes. Instead of losing his money to Nigerian princes or pyramid schemes, he lost it the old-fashioned way, land speculation. Mr. Huxley had happily purchased a massive territory far from any British development that was described as being empty and perfect for growing things, with natives around that would gladly work for pay. 
so we prepared and packed up his whole family in a covered wagon and set off into the bush. Now, the terrain they crossed is pretty much designed to kill white people. In the lowlands of East Africa, there's a bug called the tsetse fly that carries sleeping sickness, a disease that kills large mammals in droves. Elspeth described finally arriving at the spot her dad had purchased, but it was hard to tell that it was any particular spot because it was just a barren plain of short, wiry grass. Elspeth describes their neighbors, two men who had also traveled to the area in hopes of getting rich quick. They bragged their family about all of their plans, but Elspeth is not impressed. The two describe how they get around the great distances of the plains, using a single bicycle between the two of them. First, one would ride ahead of the other a few miles, then he would ditch the bike by the road and start walking. When the other man made it to the bike, he would ride it a few miles past the walking man. This little mobile circus didn't impress the young Elspeth, who took it as evidence that this place was much more about stupid plans to be rich than actual successful people. But it did allow the two men to cover 50 miles a day, when travel by ox cart would mean at best 15 miles a day. When the war broke out between Britain and Germany in 1914, the colonies all scrambled to get soldiers together in Africa to participate in the growing conflict. In German East Africa, the German general von Leto Vorbeck had to organize a defense of the colony, and in the most German possible response to this problem, he decides offense was the best defense. He established his base along the border with the British colony to the north and sent raiding parties out to attack the railroad line. The British responded by putting together an armored train with attached machine guns to defend the line, but it's pretty easy to get away with an attack on a line that's hundreds of miles long. One of the weird things about Vorbeck was his tendency to scout the battlefield beforehand, riding in on his trusty bicycle. During the defense of the town of Tanga, while the British were landing troops on the beach nearby, Vorbeck arrived furiously pedaling down the main street of the town looking for the British. The general's little 20-minute adventure got him into trouble more than once throughout the campaign, as he would travel ahead of his troops to scout on his bike, and would sometimes run into the front line of the British soldiers, and would have to turn his little bike around and serpentine away to avoid the bullets whizzing overhead. And personally, I just love the mental image of a stern, tough-as-nails German general pedaling a squeaky, single-gear bike across East Africa, furiously pedaling while some British soldier takes aim and wonders who the hell was dumb enough to bike into them. Now we're going to jump from 1914 to 1941 and the Second World War. France has fallen to the Nazis and the British Isles are under attack from the air in the Battle of Britain. Meanwhile, the United States is standing like three feet away and pointedly staring in a different direction and whistling while handing hella weapons over to the Allies on credit. That's the situation in Europe, but meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the Second World War has been going on longer than anywhere else. Japan launched an invasion of China in 1937, before the outbreak of the war in Europe. They had been fighting for four years, attempting to subdue the Chinese countryside and integrate them into what they called the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. This idea had some flowery marketing, but they took a leaf out of the animal farm playbook because in the Japanese sphere, some were more equal than others. The Japanese treated the Chinese with brutality while trying to prop up a puppet government, but they couldn't crush the nationalistic forces in inland China, hundreds of miles from the coast. 
Because of this war in China, the United States put an oil embargo on Japan, cutting off their imports, which were a large portion of their national oil consumption. This was disastrous for the Japanese military, which estimated that from that moment they could operate for at most six months before their war machine would run out of oil and grind to a halt. There was oil in the Pacific, but it would require attacking the European empires that still existed in the East Indies, the Dutch, the British, and the Americans. America was a pressing concern because they had a large navy and had recently moved the command center for the Pacific Navy from the mainland out to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The Japanese needed to get rid of the Americans and the British in order to take over the many scattered island territories controlled by the Europeans with the hope that they could turn those resources to their war machine. Because of this, they thought an attack on the American fleet was a crucial first step to their conquests. The other critical step was shattering the British, whose power in the area extended from their base at the southern tip of the Malay Peninsula, which some referred to as Fortress Singapore. The defenses of Singapore were set up so that they looked strong but had critical weaknesses. There were large artillery pieces in the fortress, but they were designed to fire at ships and had no shells for firing inland. They barely had enough men to man the fortress, but defense of the fortress meant a defense of Malaya, a country the size of England. They didn't have enough planes, and because of that, the navy didn't want to bring their ships in to help defend the city without proper air support. This fatal weakness might not have been exploited, except the Germans had attacked a British ship the previous year with a report on board on the state of the defenses. The report might as well have just had, we are totally fucked, written on it, and include the Japanese in that the fortress Singapore was more like Sandcastle Singapore. When the Japanese attack, they don't attempt a naval assault on the city. They land their troops on the north side of the center of the peninsula. This immediately cuts off soldiers and fleeing civilians north of the landing zone. Then they push up and down Malaya, kicking British ass. The Japanese bring thousands of bicycles with them, and they use these to travel extreme distances in the early days of their attack. Some Japanese soldiers were issued with essentially a Japan owes you one bike ticket, and were told to just jack the first bike they saw when they got there. The British had figured that the jungle would be an impassable obstacle for the Japanese, but even discounting that that was a dumbass idea, they didn't even have to go through any jungle, because Malaya had some of the best roads in the British Empire. The Japanese pedal blitz allowed the Japanese to keep up the speed of their attack, and some soldiers pedaled for 20 hours straight on the first day. The speed and competence of the attack shocked the British, who thought of the Japanese as racially inferior and incapable of fighting someone as hoity-toity as them. The Japanese pushed the British out of Malaya and trapped them in their fortress Singapore, where they managed to hold out for about as much time as it took for the Japanese to get there and kick them out. Most of the Europeans had joined the frantic evacuation, traveling by land or sea to anywhere that might be out of Japan's grasp. The locals who had fled to Singapore would be the victims of the siege and the occupation that followed it. As the military hastily evacuated the city, They forgot to do one thing, and that was tell the Japanese bombing the city that they were ollieing the fuck out. So that job was left to one Eurasian horse trainer, 
who clambered onto his trusty bicycle and pedaled 21 miles out of the city to the Japanese command post to tell them to, hey, could you stop bombing us, please? It's yours now. You own this. The carpet's shitty enough as is. And so ends the Japanese pedal blitz of Malaya. So, wow, we took a real turn there, from bikes to random chunks of World War history, and also this wasn't even kinda current, but whatever. So tell your friends, the real dangerous weapon in this world isn't guns, bombs, or words, it's bikes. Those little fuckers are dangerous. Seriously, when I was little, I pushed out the front brake instead of the back brake on my bike, and flew over the handlebars. I can honestly say in that moment, it was the new worst thing that had ever happened to me. Skin, knees, and elbows suck, 